Well, good morning. Greetings to each of you in the Master's name this morning. A week and a half ago, we had a men's meeting, and there were a couple of things I was kind of thinking about this message as we were having that meeting, and there were a couple of things that stood out to me in that. Uh, one of the questions that I had put down for us to discuss was, where do we want to be at the end of the day? And, well, we're almost at the end of the year. So, is where you are at the end of this year where you hope to be? And as you begin the next year, how are you going to get where you want to go in the next year? Mark, Brother Mark shared a verse that really caught my eye, or my mind. Zechariah 8.23, Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of, of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And the question that came to my mind as I thought about that verse was, what was it about that Jewish man that made those ten men think that God was with him? What was it that they saw that made them think that? Also in our discussion at that meeting, uh, Brother Brian brought up the conflict that early Christians had with emperor worship. <clears throat> And uh, I've been studying early church history, so that was kind of on my mind too. And the early early Christianity, the first basically the first three hundred years of Christianity, uh, Christian belief was illegal. So it was illegal to be a Christian. And because emperor worship was required, that brought them into conflict with the Roman government. And I found it interesting what some Roman writers called Christianity. Uh, this is kind of a across the board, they called it an evil superstition. Um, they wrote that Christians were haters of humanity. And some of the reasons for that was that some pagans, well, Christians didn't allow pagans to come to their secret meetings, um, like their communion services, things like that. And I guess the pagans wondered what went on at these meetings. Well, there was talk of eating flesh and drinking blood. And so rumors got circulated that they, at these secret meetings, they killed babies and ate their meat or their flesh and drank their blood. That was some of the rumors that were circulated about Christians back in those days. It was also uh, from the, the kiss of charity, the kiss, the Christian greeting, there were rumors that they were immoral at their secret meetings. And so... There was a lot against Christians in those days. They were not really, they didn't really have a popular 
Christianity was not really uh, very popular in the public opinion. So how did early Christians overcome all these negative sentiments to win many converts? There was many, many converts won during that time. And they were spread pretty much all over the Roman Empire during that time period. What was it about Christians that caused that to happen? And there were a couple significant things that came up. Uh, quiet acts of love to those around them. So doing small things. Here's two of the things that were particularly significant in Roman culture. Uh, caring for abandoned infants was one of the things that Christians did. Uh, Roman people would abandon their babies if they decided they didn't want them. And Christians would get these abandoned babies and care for them as their own children. Um, another thing that they did was a lot of times if you were too poor for a burial, uh, they would just throw a body out of a poor person and Christian people would take these bodies and give them a burial. They said that human, um, human life had value and that it deserved a proper burial, even if it was somebody that was poor. Those two things were significant things that the Roman culture observed. Um, an unswerving commitment to holy living. So basically, the things that people saw, the testimonies that, that people gave about Christians in those days was that they did what was right. One Roman writer said that he, as he tried Christians, he couldn't find anything wrong with what they did. Uh, but he was sure they were guilty of something because they were so stubborn. <laughs> what were they stubborn about? They were willing, they willingly and joyfully suffered and died for their faith. They would not give up their faith. And um, that had a huge impact on the people around them. Those were things that they were doing. So despite the fact of what people thought, they observed over time what they did and eventually near the, near the end of that 300 year period about the time that Constantine became emperor, Christianity had actually come to the place where pagans were, were sickened by the bloodshed that was happening as a result of the persecution of Christians. And so they actually moved into somewhat into favor with the public because of those things. But one thing that I want to point out that early Christians didn't see questions of behavior were not the first thing that they were interested in. The first thing that they were interested in was confession of Christ as Lord and Savior. In other words, there was a commitment to Christ, a recognition of Christ that had to come first ahead of these things that we're talking about here. These, these acts that they were doing. And so they believed that, that a connection to Christ was what these things ought to flow out of. And we show then our values by the things that we do. So John and I, as your pastors, I'd say would tend to emphasize the preeminence of the spiritual. So, if I mischaracterize John, he's closing the service. He can defend himself in a little bit. But um, 
The idea that it, what is within us is going to come out. And if we experience a kind of spiritual interconnection with Christ that is powerful, it's going to evidence itself in life. And I would say that I listen to John and I know the way that I think, and I'd say that we kind of lean towards promoting that to you as people. You need to develop something strong within you that will produce something. But how is that inner part expressed? Well, it's expressed by the things that we do. And so it's not disconnected. Roberto and I were talking here recently about uh, the relationship between the physical and the spiritual. And I just really appreciated the way he pointed out how inseparable they are. We can't really separate um, the inner part of who we, who we are from our physical, the physical aspects of who we are. And Scripture is clear that as long as we're in the body, we're going to have this ongoing existing relationship between our body, who we are, and the spiritual inner part of who we are. So the title of the message this morning is The Power of Example. If you're here and you're under the age of 10, do you ever play church? Some of you do. How many of you, adults and children, have ever played church in the past? Pretty good number of people. I'm going to tell you a little story about when I played church. Okay? So it was me and I think three of my sisters. This is the first and really only significant one that sticks out in my mind. I think we did it more than this. but So we had this set of steps in one room of our house, kind of open staircase. And we went to this. We set up a chair, first of all, for a podium. And then we went and sat on the steps and we had these um, praises we sang, this kind of orange songbook. I don't know, I see them around occasionally. And we took these praises we sing songbooks and we sang out of these songbooks or something. I'm not sure if it was really singing, but we were trying. And then I was the only boy, so I was supposed to preach. So I remember getting up and walking up front and turning around and facing my sisters and all of a sudden, I realized that I didn't have anything intelligent to say. <laughs> and I said a few things, and then I got kind of tickled, and I said a few foolish things, and I went and sat down. And then we sang a little bit more, and then our service was over. We were done. Well, it's... We can visualize things like that and have memories of things like that. It's kind of a cute little story in our memory. But what's really going on? Does it show us something important? And I think it does. Why did we play church? And I give you two reasons why we played church. My sisters and I. My parents went to church. That was one reason. The second reason was we tried to make what we imagined a reality. So we imagined 
that we could have church, that we could have a little church. And so we acted that out and tried to make it a reality. I have three points I'd like to draw from this story. And then a fourth one's not specifically tied to that story. And then I want us to think, and we'll come back to them later. The first one is, acting things out physically is a very important part of mind development. So, acting things out is important to how we think. It helps us to understand what is needed to perform something. And it brings a heightened awareness to us of what it really takes or what the real world is really made up of. So I remember, I think probably the part, the whole thing of preaching, the preaching experience is probably what sticks out in my mind about that story more than anything else. Because I remember having in my mind that I was going to get up front and do just what the preacher did on Sunday. And when I got up there and realized that I didn't have anything to say, it suddenly made me realize that there was more than went into this than what met the eye. And I wasn't sure what to do with it. Unfortunately, it wasn't in a situation where I really had to come up with something important or have something important. So needless to say, for this preaching service or for this preaching opportunity, I spent more time in prep than I did for that one. So I found out something about the real world. If you're going to speak and have something intelligent to say, you better be thinking about it before you say it. So it helped to develop my mind by acting it out. I think sometimes my boys are amused when I try to build something from scratch. Because I have something in my mind that we're going to make, and then I get into it, and I don't have this material, or I don't have this fastener, or something quite like I want it to. And so when I start the project and what I have visualized in my mind and when I finish the project and what I actually have is kind of two different things. I mean, it might still serve pretty much serve the purpose. But when I act out the process of building, so I have this thing in my mind and I have the idea that I'm going to make this thing and it's going to serve a certain purpose and I can see what it looks like in my mind. But when I actually act it out, I find out what's involved to get it done. And it develops my mind. It helps me to understand how that thing works. How's that important to example? Well, one, we act in response to example. So just like my parents, um, going to church initiated something in us, a response in us. We act in response to example, in response to the things we see, and it helps us also as we act them out to understand things in the real world. Second thing it, about example, it sets forward the ideas about what is valuable. It sets forward our ideas about what is valuable. So the things that we see people doing we recognize that they are those people consider those things to be valuable enough to do. If it wasn't valuable enough to do, they wouldn't do it. So we observed our parents going to church. So we saw that that had value in their lives by their example. 
And then we tried to make that part of our reality because we assumed that because it was valuable to them, it should be valuable to us. And we are constantly both setting and observing examples. It's happening all the time. The things you are doing is, are setting examples. The things that you are watching other people do are observing their examples. And so, the act itself, the simple act itself, has meaning that goes beyond the act because it's an example to other people. So meaning goes beyond just the simple act because it is an example. The third thing is example leaves an impression that pulls us in a direction. We understood as little children that going to church was acceptable and even expected behavior. So we, real, we recognized that our parents expected accepted that we would go to church and even expected it. And we all, as people, and I, I think this is one of the things about children, one of the innocent things about children is that they're not trying to hide from those influences. They're innocent in their response to example. And so they respond to example as we look at the way children respond to example, we can see the way that we naturally tend to respond to example. If we take away all the, all the other things that are involved in, in life as an adult. One of the things I thought about that as I was thinking about this is that one of the years why, one of the reasons why teen years are difficult is because we're trying to do two things at once. One of them is we're trying to establish a personal identity and the other one is we're trying to fit in. So how do you be separate identity and fit in at the same time? And I will put forward to you because I'm not interested in putting young people on the spot that many of us, I believe, carry those things with us into adulthood. Probably most of us. And maybe it'd be safe to say all of us carry those things with us into adulthood. And so we have this, this battle between personal identity and acceptance that we have to deal with. And I think that example, coupled with positive relationship, is a balancing force that helps us to work through that. Anyway, I'll leave that where it's at for now. The fourth one's not really in the story, but it's this. We think about the things that come to us through our physical senses. And I can give you an example of that that you can understand. White elephants. Now, I'm guessing that you were not thinking about white elephants before I said that. But now that I said white elephants, all of a sudden you're thinking about white elephants. Why? What made you think about it? It came to you through your senses. 
The things we put in front of our five senses affect what we and others think about. And so if you go back to what I was saying earlier about the fact that we're constantly setting and seeing and observing examples, you'll realize that the things that we're seeing are causing us to think about things. And so the examples we're setting and the examples we're seeing are causing us to think. All right? We're people of story. And the Bible is full of stories. All kinds of stories. And they give us examples. I have a list of names here. I'm going to read down through this list of names. I want you to participate a little bit. I want you to either give me a thumbs up if it's a positive example or a thumbs down if it's a negative example. Or if you don't know or maybe it's kind of a partial character, you could go thumb sideways with it. Noah. Abraham. Lot. Jacob. Joseph. Moses. Dathan and Abiram. Nadab and Abihu. Balaam. Gideon. Saul. David. Esther. All right. Now, you know that I just touched a few of the biblical stories, okay? And I could list a whole lot of other people and, you know, generally kind of depends on what part of the story you're thinking about as to whether you went like this or this on some of them or this or this on some of them. But I just wrote down a few things. I thought about these names, just kind of the first thing that popped into my, God, into my mind. I wrote down, for Noah, following God puts our families in a place to experience salvation. Abraham was willing to sacrifice what was dearest to him for his faith and love in God. Lot, pursuit of wealth cost him everything. Jacob, deception and favoritism in families leads to trouble. Joseph, ethical and moral purity has tremendous rewards in the end. Moses, God will give us what we need to perform the impossible. Dathan and Abiram, self-exaltation leads to death for me and my family. Nadab and Abihu, not approaching God properly will kill you. Balaam, we can't walk the fence between God and our fleshly desires and come out okay. Gideon, it doesn't take much when God is behind it. Saul, compromises the beginning of the end. David, a perfect heart comes back to God even after failure. Esther, God is with his people. Do you think these people, when they were living out their lives, do you think that they had any idea that two or three or four thousand years later, their examples would still be affecting people in the world? That's a lot of time. And yet, these people are still leaving us an example. You can turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized in Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. 
For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as they were, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages are, have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has taken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that you are able. But will with the temptation, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. I'm going to stop reading there. So the writer here to the Corinthians, Paul, is telling the Corinthians that the things that happened in the Old Testament Scriptures happened to give an example to them. They were written down as an example to observe and to learn from. And I've often said there's two ways to learn. It's by the mistakes of others, and it's the hard way. Now, you could say we can learn from God, and, I, and we can. But part of the way that God has given us to learn is by example. By the example of others. And He had those examples written down in a book. And we're to look at those examples and learn from those examples. Romans chapter 15, verse 2 says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. So there it's reflecting on the sacrifice of Christ and a call to us to see that sacrifice and then, again, emphasizing that what was written in the Scriptures was written for our learning so that we could learn. And then the example of Christ Himself, John thirteen fifteen, For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. So Christ here calling us specifically to follow His example. Philippians three seventeen, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. So there's two things here. One of them is Paul calls them to follow his example, but then also they're to note others who also walk in the same way. So they're to take note of those people and their example. First, 2 Thessalonians 3.9 Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how we of how you should follow us. So Paul speaking here again, talking about how he was doing something, not or asking them to do something, not because he didn't have authority, but because he wanted to be an example to them. 
James 5.10, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in His steps. So again, the, the picture of Christ and following His in His example of suffering. 2 Peter 2.6, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, Condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who would after, who afterward would live ungod, ungodly. And then again in Jude, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and going after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So just scriptures that are directly referring to example and the significance of example but I want to focus on two verses from the New Testament. One's in 1 Timothy 4.12 where Paul tells Timothy, let no, man, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. So this morning, it doesn't matter what your age is. Paul says, don't let anyone despise your youth but be an example. You have a command to be an example. And did you notice what the list covered? It covers what you do, how you do it, why you do it, and the integrity in which you do it. Be thou an example in word, in conduct, things that you're doing, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And then the second one is Hebrews 4.11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So it's telling us there to be diligent. I think maybe that's the second place in Hebrews it tells us to be diligent, because I remember John bringing that up in one of his messages and talking about um, not neglecting. There we go. Yeah. Not neglecting. You're to be diligent. What does that say? What does it mean to be diligent? Does it mean you're paying attention? Does it mean you're making sure you're covering detail? And it doesn't say because you might fall. Notice what it says. Be diligent lest anyone fall. Now, why would you, why would your diligence keep someone else from falling? Because of your example. Because your example of being diligent could help someone else because people are watching you. You know the little children's song. Somebody follows you, watching the things you do. Walk in the light and be pure in his sight. Somebody follows you. Paying attention because it has meaning for the future. Being diligent because it has meaning for the future. So I want to come back to those four points. And I want to talk about them a little bit more practically. Acting things out physically is a very important part of mind development. In the Reformation and still today, Protestantism says that obedience follows conviction. 
We understand it, we get convicted about it, and then we obey it. Okay? The Anabaptists said that obedience to the Word of God was what brought conviction. So it says it, you obey it, and it leads you to conviction. You are convinced not because of something happening inside of your mind first. You're rather convinced by doing something and seeing the results of it. There's a, there's a deep level of conviction there when you see how the Word of God works. Following God is not about getting it figured out. Getting it all figured out and then we'll follow God. Let's get everything straightened out first. Let's get, let's get everything figured out theologically, whatever, and then we'll follow God. It's not about that. It's about following what God has shown us. And as we do that, it deepens our understanding about the reality of life and how to live. A friend and I had a discussion about the veiling, and he said, I don't feel convicted about it. If I feel convicted about it, we'll do it. but that doesn't change the truth. And if that is your mindset, that I'm not going to do it till I feel convicted about it, you probably not only will never gain the conviction, but you'll probably also never see the benefit and blessing that the conviction could bring you, that the obedience could bring you. The tendency is to say, that once I understand the spiritual significance about the... Sorry. The tendency is to say that once I understand the spiritual, spiritual significance, then the physical thing or action is meaningless. So in other words, if I have it right in my heart, then actually doing it really doesn't make that much difference. So this is looking at it from just a little bit different angle. But I submit to you this morning that that's simply not true. That there is meaning embedded in action. And when we, when we begin our Christian lives, it's often, we often think about the things that God asks us to do as things to do. And then as we mature and grow in our Christian experience, we start to see the spiritual significance underneath of it. And then we say, well, I just was just doing those things and they were just empty. Now I have the conviction in my heart. So those things really don't matter because I've got the conviction in my heart. But that's not how it works. It's actually when you have the conviction in your heart, it was the things that you did that, made, that brought that conviction there and made it meaningful. And so now it's doubly as important because you're living it out as a faith example to those who are following you. The physical sets the stage for the spiritual development. So we do a lot of things. 
as Christian people. Right? There are a lot of things that are just expected that you do. There are things that you've known from little up you should do. Keep doing them. If they're the right thing to do, keep doing them. They do have meaning. Second thing is, example sets forward ideas about what is valuable. So if you're hanging back there and saying, well, when I get convicted about this, I'll do it. You're constantly setting forth the example that says this is not valuable. But if you step up in obedience to do something that God asks you to do, then you're immediately setting forward that it is valuable enough to do. And so you're actually giving value to whatever God's command is that you're following. You're giving value to that by doing it. So, I have a friend that is not part of Anabaptist heritage. And he and I share a conviction. And that conviction is that divorce and remarriage is wrong. He and his wife both feel that way. Well, me and my wife both feel that way. But he is not part of a heritage of faith that supports that conviction that he has. What are the chances that his children will be able to find marriage partners who share the conviction that he and his wife have? And what are the chances that my children will be able to find marriage partners who have the convictions that my wife and I have? It is much more likely that my children will find marriage partners who also agree that divorce and remarriage is wrong than his children. Not saying it's impossible. Not saying that, not, not using anything other than the fact that the logical conclusion is that we have a heritage of faith that believes, that has believed, and has not only believed, but has acted upon the belief that divorce and remarriage is wrong. And it has established something that has made possible for us to have a confidence about the future as a result of that. So it wasn't just the belief, but it was also the action upon that belief that passed that on to future generations. It was, it was the example of those in the past who felt it was a valuable enough thing to put into practice. So I'd like to give you some specific practical encouragement on that. To keep a good vision, which I think we have, but also to grow that vision. 
Joe and I kind of finished up Sunday school with a little back and forth about church attendance. But what does it say when you're at church? It says that you believe it's important. What does it say when you miss church? It says you don't. It's not so important. And I wasn't here last Sunday. We're not always going to be able to be at church. But what we do says something. What do we say? What is our example indicating? It's another aspect to it as well. We grow together through shared experience. When we're here, we're sharing an experience. Everybody that's here this morning is listening to this message or sharing this experience. Now they might go home and say, I wish you'd have said something different. But they shared the experience. And so, we are in some ways being drawn together. If you're not here, you're not sharing the experience. And so in some ways, you're going a divergent path. Titus 2.9 says, Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. And we, of course, don't have slavery here in the 21st century America, and so we just kind of breeze over that. Not pilfering, and we don't steal. But showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So I hope we would all say that we're bondservants of Jesus Christ this morning. And that we want to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And that word adorn has to do with how we present ourselves. It's an external thing. So how do we adorn ourselves in this world? How do we adorn the doctrine of Jesus Christ? What do we do comes back to our example. What kind of life are we living? What is our example? That we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. Soberly has to do with our right mind and moderate. Jesus came and showed us that life is serious. Why? Because there's something that's going to happen beyond. I don't think we should be approaching life from a casual perspective. Do the things that we do in life show that we take life seriously? Righteously is not just avoiding wrong, but it's also doing right. God is righteous, and so He does things right. And we should be seeking to live righteously. Godly is God-like. So not just what's good in our perspective, 
but what's good in God's perspective? Do you know what God is like? So how can you be God-like if you don't know what God's like? How can you set an example of godliness if you don't know Him? The third point was example leaves an impression that pulls us in a direction. Hebrews 4.11 Let us therefore be diligent to enter into that rest lest anyone fall. Everything that you do is pulling people in a direction. What direction are you pulling people? Is it a good direction? Are you paying attention to which direction you're going? Is what you are doing purposeful? And what do I mean by that? What do I mean by purposeful? Well, you're deliberately choosing a course of action. That's what purposeful means. That will take you as a person to a better place. And that's a deliberate engagement with the world. Number four, we think about the things that come to us through our physical senses. What are we setting in front of our eyes and our ears? Titus, that passage there in Titus 2 said that the grace of God was going to do something. It was going to teach us denying, that we would deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. So some time ago, somebody told me or mentioned to me that they didn't think they had ever heard why country music was wrong. And they said, well, they knew that they shouldn't listen to it, but why was it wrong? I said, well, it's full of a lot of ungodliness. So if we listen to it, what are we doing? We're putting into our person that ungodliness. We're taking it in. And then what are we doing? We're thinking about it. Just like I made you think about white elephants a little bit ago. It makes us think about that stuff. I'm deeply concerned about our use of video. It affects the way we think. The frivolous, the bad language, the empty, the waste of time. Are we really taking life seriously? The whatsoever things that we are to think on will only be a reality if we surround ourselves with those types of things. If the input into our lives is not whatsoever things are good and pure and lovely, we're not going to be able to think about whatsoever things are pure and good and lovely. My discussion, my devotions, the places I go, what am I putting into my life? This is kind of my New Year's message to you as a congregation. Where do we want to be at the end of 2022? Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. 
The things that we do here at Mabel Chapel will develop a culture. We'll have a, we will have a church culture here at Mabel Chapel. We already partially do. And I think in a lot of ways it's good. But what will that culture be? And I suggest to you that most churches have one of two types of culture. Either a social culture or a spiritual culture. So people want to go along with a good social, with a social culture because it's a good social environment. So it's easy to be involved. And it is our natural tendency to move towards a social environment. And the reason is because there's not as much moral implication in a strictly social culture. In a spiritual culture, there's more moral implications. A spiritual culture, however, will draw a different group of people. It'll draw a group of people who want to be with God. So, who do we want to draw? People that just want to have a good social environment or people that want to have to be to walk with God? Where do we want to go till the end of next year? Ladies, will putting a pin in your hair be remembered in 1800 years? Perpetua and Felicity died together for their faith in Carthage in 200 AD. Perpetua was a noble woman of 22 years. She was in instruction class for baptism and had just given birth to a son. She was an educated woman and so she wrote about her experiences in prison. That's why we have some of this stuff. She wrote about a vision that she had while she was in prison. She saw a narrow ladder that had sharp weapons on each side so that it must be climbed carefully. At the base of the ladder was a dragon who was waiting to bite her. Her instruction class leader called her to be careful, and this is all in her vision, and she called back, He will not harm me in the name of Jesus Christ. At this, the dragon drew back and she stepped on his head as the first rung of the ladder. Her and her companions went joyfully to the arena to give their lives to Christ. A wild heifer had been selected to be turned loose on the two young ladies. The animal struck Perpetua first, tearing her dress and knocking her to the ground. Her thoughts, thoughts were not on her pain, but on her example. She pulled her torn dress around her to cover herself modestly. Then she asked for a pin to put up her hair so that she would not, so that she would not appear to be in mourning. Because a disheveled look was a sign of mourning. And she asked for a pin to put up her hair so that she did not appear to be mourning as she gave her life joyfully for Jesus Christ. Then she went and supported her fallen sister uh, eventually they were killed by a soldier. Someone noted later that perpetual fel felicity together means everlasting happiness. Will your example last 1,800 years? Will you tread on the dragon on your way to everlasting happiness? <laughs>